I have my unique perspective as a time money happiness researcher. So I say focus on time, prioritize free time and happiness just as you would prioritize work and if not prioritize it more. Welcome to Joy at Work. I'm your host, Alex Liu, Managing Partner and Chairman at Carney. This season on Joy at Work, we've talked to people who are using a joy mindset to create major transformations. But today, we want to look to the future. How will the next generation change the way we think about work? And how will they infuse work with more joy, justice, equality, and positive change? Later in this episode, I'm going to talk to our guide for this topic, Harvard Business School professor Ashley Willens. She is the author of the book, Time Smart, and her research focuses on understanding how the daily and long-term decisions that people make about time and money in their personal lives, relationships, and at work impact their well-being. And as a millennial, she's also a representative of this next generation at work, and I'm looking very forward to learning from her. But first, let's hear from a few voices from the next generation. We talked to three recent graduates about their vision for more joyful work. Meet Brielle, and Asta and Jovain. My name is Brielle Self. I live in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I just graduated from Howard University in finance. And on July 19th, I will be starting a corporate banking role at Citibank in New York. I think my parents' generation, stability was very high on the hierarchy of needs over like happiness and what makes me feel, you know, fulfilled in life. For me personally, I do value stability, but happiness is definitely right up there next to it. Money is great, but it can only do so much. I've seen a lot of people my age like kind of stray away, especially in this pursuit of happiness that a lot of us in my generation are after. I've seen a lot of people like stray away from corporate jobs because they don't think that happiness and corporate jobs can like be in the same direction. A corporate job is not the end of happiness. It's not the end of creativity. It sometimes can be a value add. It sometimes can be, you know, like a gateway to open things up. I definitely think a lot of people should change their perspective on corporate jobs. And I just think that comes with education and more people who have done it and are in these roles coming back to their alma maters and other schools and just speaking about, you know, the opportunities that come with like working some of these corporate jobs. My name is Astha Chavla. Currently, I'm an MBA student at the Kellogg School of Management. But before Kellogg, I have a work experience of around five years across automobile and CPG industries. And post Kellogg, I'm looking to go into marketing or strategy kind of roles. The connotation of the word work has changed for me. In my first job, it was about being financially stable, getting my first salary, finding meaning in work in the form of let me get some technical expertise. But as I'm thinking about my career goals, post Kellogg. I think it's more about the impact I create beyond business. And I think a, a new thing that I have found myself constantly thinking about is how is my work taking me closer to my legacy? I think I want my legacy to be to make the business a more equitable workplace where anyone and everyone feels welcome. When I was coming into MBA, someone told me that don't just work towards being a better employee, think about being a better employer in the future as well. I was thinking about joy at work. I think the word that came to my mind was belonging. How much belonging do I feel with the workplace and how my co-workers feel working with me? I think that's a big part because if it goes beyond the transactional nature of the work, I think it creates a lasting connection with the workplace. My name is Jovain Smith. 
I am from Jamaica and I just recently graduated from Howard University. I start full-time at Microsoft as a business development and strategy analyst. Growing up, I thought that work was this static nine to five and that was it. But my first internship back in Jamaica, it was a non-traditional internship. So you do whatever you want to do. Just at the end of the day, you had a deliverable. And I was like, huh, this is different from what I kind of grew up thinking about work. And I was like, huh, it's actually fun. This work thing, it's not that bad. My personal philosophy is I shouldn't be too stressed at work if i'm going to work i need to have like fun while i'm working it has to be collaborative it shouldn't be myself just working on something and then just pass off like it has to be like me collaborating with smart intelligent people making better solutions and not just being tied to the company itself but more so the mission of a company and most importantly, it should have a positive impact on my community. Being from Jamaica and coming to the US, going to the HBCU and seeing the inequality among different communities, especially among minority communities, like that's something that I want to change. And so like my work should bring about some changes around that. I think of myself as privileged to get a college education. And there are like a thousand of students out there who are smarter or even more talented than me who could not have gotten this opportunity that I've gotten. My goal in life is to find as much of those people as possible and kind of like just paid forward. Because when you do that, you're not just helping the community, but you're helping society as a whole to evolve or to get better because you're getting more talented people to work on complicated issues that we need to solve. And so joy at work for me means that, you know, you're doing things kind of how you would want to do it. You, you get the freedom to do things how you want to do it, stuff that you want to do in an environment that is safe, that is nurturing and one that is like conducive to growth in your organization. Wow, there was just so much to unpack there and discuss. So let's get to it. Let's bring in Ashley Willens from Harvard Business School to reflect on this a bit more. Ashley, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. What stood out for you in hearing those conversations from those recent graduates? You're right. There really is a lot to unpack. What stood out for me in these conversations was a few things that are related to my research. So the first was from Brielle, and she said that money only matters so much. And she couldn't be more right. My research suggests that money has diminishing marginal utility for happiness. In fact, as we start to make more money, we become less happy because we start looking towards people that have even more money than we do. And we have less time to spend with friends and family or positively contributing to the community. And I see my students at HBS grapple with these trade-offs too. How much should I work? How much money should I go after in my life? And I think it's really important to keep in mind that we do need to leave space in our lives to pursue both the work that we care about, but also the family commitments and the civic engagement, the community building elements that we heard Javain talk about that are so important for happiness, both at work and outside of it. This sort of theme of getting what you want in a broader sense from your workplace, the younger generation asking for more around purpose, meaning, impact, flexibility. Is this a theme that's been around and or is it just something that now is picking up 
I think it's definitely been around and it's picking up. I teach a course called Motivation and Incentives at the Harvard Business School, and it used to be purely labor economics. How much do we need to pay people to get their maximum performance? How might people game the performance system? And now we're moving more toward intrinsic motivation. Three quarters of my students did final projects this year about how workplaces might be able to do better to fulfill their fundamental needs at work. What are some perks around paid and unpaid vacation? How can organizations optimize to make sure that they actually get the time off that they want and need? How can workplaces help students help their junior employees navigate work-life balance better? So my students are just enthralled, enraptured with these ideas around flexibility, remote work, happiness, seeking purpose through our work. And I have seen this in my own data that these trends have accelerated during the COVID-19 pandemic. We ran this longitudinal panel and we see that just in the last year, students who are impacted directly and indirectly by the COVID-19 pandemic, either they saw their friends or family lose jobs or they themselves had their education disrupted, they are more passionate than ever about seeking work, not just for financial security, but also for purpose in life. So if we thought these trends existed before, we're just going to continue to see an acceleration in part due to the COVID-19 pandemic and people really wanting to be part of positive change in the world. It sounds like we're at an inflection point. What advice are you giving these students? I have my unique perspective as a time, money, happiness researcher. So I say focus on time, prioritize free time and happiness just as you would prioritize work and if not, prioritize it more. I used to teach a negotiations course for the first three years that I was at HBS and we have a whole semester devoted to negotiations around salary, around buying and selling assets, around business deals. And yet we think and talk almost nothing about negotiating for time in the context of our everyday life. So one very concrete strategy I emphasize with my students is we need to feel as comfortable negotiating for time as we do for money. And my research recently has looked at the fact that most of us feel worried about asking for more time. We think it's going to make us look less committed or less of an ideal worker, if you will. And actually, my data suggests the opposite. As long as we're asking for more time pro actively, our colleagues see us as more committed because at the end of the day, quality really is the key metric. And so I really try to depart to my students that it is important to take time each day to make sure we're living our life in the way that's aligned with our broader goals and purpose. So mapping our days on how we spend our time on an everyday basis into how we would ideally like to live our lives and then thinking concretely about how we're going to get there. What does that look like? And one really critical strategy is negotiating and asking for more time. Other strategies related to prioritization of time in our everyday life look like being deliberate with our time, finding time, funding time. There's a lot of strategies that I talk about, but I think really cultivating time and social relationships as being one of the most key ways to spend time on an everyday basis to improve happiness is something that I really try to underscore. And it doesn't necessarily mean moving to a different city or taking on a different career or job. I think a lot of times my students will say then, if I really want a nice family life or if I really want to volunteer in my community, then perhaps I need to limit myself in other ways. And I don't see necessarily work and time in opposition toward one another. But if we do really want ambitious careers and also a strong personal life, we have to put equal weight and equal effort into both our professional pursuits and our personal pursuits. 
What do you tell the student that says, well, listen, I love that. I obviously know my avocations, my passions. I want to be happy. I want to prioritize, but I got a job. I got bills to pay. How do I make that trade-off? I really come down on this if-then thinking pretty hard, in part because our reference points are always shifting. I so often hear my students say, all of this prioritization of family and social interactions and time sounds nice, but I need to pay off my student loan. I want to get to a certain salary band, and then I'll start prioritizing time. Then I'll start doing the things that really matter. The problem is when you get to that salary band, your reference point's going to change. Your lifestyle will have already changed. Your spending habits will have already changed. So you're going to need even more money or you're going to want an even different job that might kind of take you away from other things you might want to do or having enough time to spend with friends or family or volunteering. So this if-then thinking is a bit of a time trap because our reference points, our goals are always going to be fundamentally shifting. One thing I advocate for is all of us right now, no matter what, to spend at least 30 minutes or an hour in ways that we want to be spending our time. So for example, if we say, well, I'm going to devote time to volunteering in my community or donating to charity, but I'm going to do that once I get tenure, once I get promoted, once I'm in a senior management role. If we do that kind of if-then thinking, we'll probably never actually follow through on those passions that we've always wanted to. Instead, try to break down that goal and say, I do have this goal. How can I do this in 30-minute increments each day? How can I start cultivating these interests outside of work or making concerted effort to spend time with people I care about or check in with my colleagues in five minutes, 10-minute increments each and every day by breaking down this big, broad goal that we have for ourselves into small, actionable steps, and then substituting some of the ways we waste time on an everyday basis, like social media, and inserting that time with all of these other goals, that can be a really helpful strategy to make sure we're walking the talk now in our lives. I myself did this, right? You talked to me about being a millennial, and I studied time. And I, for the first several years in my career, did not set boundaries. I put all of my attention and energy and effort into work. And that cost me a relationship of 10 years. And I at first blamed the other person. But of course, looking back on that, they didn't want to end up moving when I took a job in Boston because I was basically attached to my work and what would they do? Like I would never make time for them in the life that I had created. And that was really small decisions that add up or accumulate across the course of many years. It's me going to my inbox instead of spending an hour and a half with my partner every day over dinner and going for a walk or doing an activity together. And those small decisions really add up over time, both positively and negatively. So it wasn't until I had this relationship implode after 10 years that I really started to take this idea of small changes around the margins right now, regardless of where I am in my career, seriously. So I make concerted efforts to disconnect at certain times of day to clearly communicate my boundaries to my colleagues and also to clearly communicate my off time to my partner so we can coordinate on our schedules. Because both my research suggests that we can get a lot of happiness out of small decisions we make on an everyday basis, but also from my own personal experience of making the wrong trade-offs over and over again for a period of time that cost me a lot of important relationships in my life. I'm really a fan of not sacrificing the things that we want in life until we hit a certain goal, but really making time for them in the here and now, because the future is uncertain, but the present moment is something we all have available to us. It's a tough lesson for insecure overachievers, of which you'll find a lot at business schools and undergraduates and myself and you over the years to do that. But once you have that, it sounds like it's a liberating experience. I want to shift to 
even broader ideas, which is purpose and impact. That was a theme that came across in a couple of the students earlier. How do you observe that trend evolving and happening now? I've done a lot of research on the benefit of intangible rewards and recognition in the workplace. And one of my favorite data sets of all of these incentives and rewards recognition on the spot programs of Fortune 50, Fortune 500 companies all over the world is that their most valuable reward and recognition on their incentive platforms is a zero dollar value card of appreciation. So what this means is that these small token gifts, even larger financial rewards, are not as valuable to employees today as calling them out and appreciating the work that they're doing, helping employees see the specific tangible impact that their work is having in the world. Adam Grant has a concept that I absolutely love called pro-social impact. So when you help employees see how even the simple things that they're doing on an everyday basis are shaping the world or helping your company move the needle on its important business priorities. This goes a long way in helping employees feel appreciated and is a top retention attraction tool that companies have at their disposal. One of my PhD students shows that even when employees are working on tasks they really don't like doing, like data cleaning or um, some really rote monotonous task, they will feel much better about it and feel like their jobs are more meaningful when they even know that their work is helping their colleagues get their work done. Just reminding people that all of the stuff that we're doing, whether it's an email communication or data scraping, something that takes time and can feel tiring is helping a colleague or helping the business. And then of course, to your, what you're saying, when the organization itself has a critical mission in society, we see highly talented students uh, and graduates willing to give up money to go work for companies to go make a difference in the world. And I definitely have observed and feel as part of the millennial generation that we do care a lot and are sensitive about the social impact of the work that we're having. Another theme these days is the concept of social justice and feeling not only that the company is doing great things and you're a part of a company that has a purpose, but you individually feeling properly treated, feeling engaged, feeling a sense of belonging at work. How do you think about this and what has your research said? This is really important. And one way that we've seen the op this idea operationalized is give employees a voice, allow them to vote on critical issues that the organization is facing, allow everyone to have a say in some way to be able to express their thoughts, feelings, opinions on world events, on current events. So where I've seen companies do this well is really bringing in everyone into the conversation. Maybe that's small coffee chats with everyone in the organization. I've seen CEOs of major companies do this. So it's not impossible to reach out to your employees and really hear how they're feeling, hear their thoughts on a specific issue, run focus groups, and allow employees to feel as if their voice is being heard, not just in their advocacy work outside of the organization, but bringing that advocacy work inside. I've seen really positive examples. One comes to mind in particular. I was writing a case on Kraft Heinz, and one of the junior level analysts had a deep passion for alleviating food scarcity in their area. And they were a little afraid to do this, but they said, what the heck? I'm going to talk to my senior manager about this idea that I have. I think we should partner with this local organization and provide breakfast, Kraft Heinz, beans breakfast to all of the school districts in this area where I used to live. And the company took that idea on board and pushed it even further by 
lobbying the government and actually creating a formal policy in their organization and taking on this initiative as a corporate social responsibility initiative. And I think this is a great example of not only being top down with regard to thinking about civil service as an organization, but allowing these ideas to come from the bottom up and to help empower your employees to truly stand up for the causes that they care about. That's a great example of how to use workplace sourcing, crowdsourcing, et cetera, to get innovation from all types of sources. We did something recently on the topic of mental health, which is a huge topic, especially in professional services, being a Zoom zombie, uh, digital zombie. You know, we asked all of our professionals and staff to provide ideas to improve the mental health, everything from policies to workplace structure to barometers, et cetera. And then we allowed folks to vote on those which would have the best impact. Now, if we take this notion of belonging to individual belonging, huge topic, diversity, equity, and inclusion, how is the next generation that you're interacting with thinking about this topic? This is a, also on the forefront of all of my students' minds. I'm a behavioral scientist. I've written actually a case on DEI. In the case that I just recently wrote, we're actually starting to use the tools, technological tools, to make the selection process of candidates more fair and equitable by removing candidate information, by having a more systematized interview process. So everyone's doing task-based assessments that are randomized and shuffled instead of having a face-to-face -face interview as the first touch point. And I think starting to bring in some of the analytic tools that are at our disposal because of the technology that all of our organizations have and using that to level the initial playing field and then doing a lot around community building will be really critical. So something that I think we were going to talk a little bit about and relates to your last point of being a Zoom zombie, there might be a lot more of hybrid work in the future. And I'm studying this topic extensively now. And this is one area where I feel like the future of work is going to have to be very careful. I've talked a little bit about technology and how that might play a role in selection and how we might want to lean in more on technological tools to make the initial interview process more fair. But what do we do when we actually hire a workforce that looks much different than the workforce that we've hired in the past that has different backgrounds, interests, and experiences? How do we then facilitate belonging and create a culture where everyone thrives? I think hybrid is going to pose some particular challenges related to the online and offline environment. So what we observed in the virtual forced experiment of working from home during COVID-19 is that L&D, learning and development, has taken a critical hit. It's harder to have these hallway conversations, these informal social interactions where you're getting to meet colleagues, you're learning about your job, your sense making after an important meeting. So we all might be on more Zoom meetings and have more visibility into client meetings we may have never been able to attend as a junior employee. But now we have a lot less understanding of what the heck just happened in that meeting because we're not having those hallway conversations, we're not overhearing our manager make sense of what just happened. And so the risk in this new future of work is who comes to the office and who doesn't will mean that some people are going to be left in or out of these conversations that might be critical for mentorship, for innovation, for creative ideas. So as organizations start to adopt more remote and hybrid ways of working, DE&I is going to take more of a center stage as we try to navigate how to make the virtual and hybrid environment equitable and inclusive for all of our employees. You point out quite rightly that maybe the transformational aha moments, the sense of making sense is not there. That is very compelling and resonates with me. I think that is true. And it 
links to your broader theme of, you know, don't stay in the rat race, right? Don't make this checklist of things you got to do. I got to get through these 10 video calls today. That's the definition of success. No, it's not. And it's also related to the point that Asta was making as well, that she really wants a career and many of our students really want careers that go beyond transactional relationships. And I think in the virtual environment, one thing we've been hearing over and over from the consultants that we've been interviewing is virtual just feels more transactional. We have less gaps and breaks in between our meetings. We have less spontaneous conversation. So moving beyond the transactional nature of virtual work, I think is also something that's going to be critical, especially for retention of these younger employees who desire flexibility and relationships and purpose. We are seeing the potential risk also of attrition among the millennial workforce who's been working from home for the past year and feels like they are more of a cog in the wheel than ever, that some of these perks have gone missing related to social relationships, related to spontaneous interactions. And that, I think, is, again, going to be something to pay attention to in in the upcoming years. So if we zoom out on your research a little bit more, what do you think the next generation will do with this latent passion, with what they want to do differently? How do you think this will change the workplace and their decisions? I think it will change the workplace in a very positive way. Our younger generations are pushing on workplaces to care about aspects of our personal lives that workplaces were never set up or designed to do. We used to work in factories, produce a certain amount of widgets each day and go home. Workplaces look nothing like that now and they're going to continue to look nothing like that in the future. I think workplaces are going to have to start looking more like tech startups, right? Where you have childcare, the Patagonias of the world, where your kids are running around and your dogs are coming in and you don't have to go in every day to the office and maybe you even have a workspace that you all meet at that's an office near your homes as opposed to going all the way downtown every day to come into the office. I think it's going to look more like the freedom and flexibility model because that's what younger generations are going to want and desire. I think we're also going to see an increased interest in sustainability initiatives. Climate change is in the forefront of younger generations' minds. So corporate travel is going to be something that we're also going to see be pushed up against because it infringes on our ability to take control over our time on an everyday basis and negatively contributes to the environment. I think we're going to start seeing a lot of employees and younger generations really push against the formal and traditional ways of doing things. And COVID has really opened that up, right? We haven't traveled for the last year. We can see that work is still possible. It's not perfect. We shouldn't do everything remotely. But we're going to start thinking about being a lot more strategic with our decisions around travel to the office and travel to client sites. We also, I think, are going to go through a period of fits and spurts. The hybrid model is going to be challenging. We're not going to get it right the first time. So I think we're going to be needing to rapidly experiment, test, try out new ways of working, be willing to fail. And I think that's what the younger generations will really bring to the table is this appetite for experimentation and data-based strategies and ways of working. Well, the next generation is definitely more demanding, more urgent and passionate, and more mobile. Do you think that they will become more loyal or less loyal workers in the companies they choose initially to join? This is interesting too, because we also have this like economic uncertainty in the background, right? So I think in the very near term, what we've been seeing is that the younger generation of workers coming out of business school 
they're hanging out in their jobs because the economy is still recovering. In my data, I see economic uncertainty in the environment, predicting whether people kind of go after money and stability versus purpose and passion and flexibility. And so the extent to which in general societies across the world have become more economically volatile, we might see some people kind of choosing to stay longer in careers or wanting that stability because they know it's harder to move around once you buy a house and housing prices are expensive and the job market, even for highly skilled professionals, can be quite competitive. So there's that element that's sort of like pushing towards stability and loyalty. But I think that's only going to happen for organizations who offer self-actualization to employees. So the extent to which employees feel like their organizations are offering them autonomy, competence, relatedness, social interactions, experiential learning, all of these core elements that we've been talking about in the conversation today, if organizations offer that, they will see a more loyal workforce. Last question here for you, Ashley. We've talked in some of the other podcasts about the connection between workplace joy and the sense of justice, Work not only in the workplace, but also beyond. How do you hope that some of the trends and workplace changes that you envision and would hope for can actually maybe actualize both joy, justice, and equity and the belonging that we spoke of. When employees feel seen and heard, when they feel like their organization cares about them as a person, when we start moving beyond the transactional nature of work, employees feel more psychologically safe, to use Amy Edmondson's terminology, to express their authentic and full selves. So as a function of offering employees the ability to be happy at work, they're going to feel more comfortable, more safe to bring out aspects of their personality that they might otherwise hide. So we taught a case example of a CEO at Henco that was trying to be the happiest CEO in the world. And this is how he defined happiness. He was saying, I want my employees to be the happiest employees. But what I mean by that is I want them to see no separation between their work selves and their personal selves. I want people to feel so comfortable at work because work is life. Work is our life. There isn't a distinction when we're at work. We are spending our precious life energy on that activity at hand. And so that I think really resonates in this conversation to me that the more that you try to fulfill employees' happiness and ensure that their emotional needs are taken care of and that you create a safe environment, then employees will bring their full selves. They'll bring the causes they care about. They'll bring their passions to the table. They'll advocate on behalf of others on issues that they feel that are important, not just in their time away from work, but their time at work. And so I think some of these changes around flexibility and autonomy really emphasize that the organizations trust you as a person and respect you. And I think when there's a mutual sense of trust and respect that employees are going to feel empowered to, if they don't see their workplaces enacting some of these changes, to be that change that they want to see enacted. And I have seen this in case examples and research is just this idea when you know your CEO is really caring about you as a person, then you want to show up and bring your full self to the table. Ashley, thanks so much for a really wide-ranging and insightful conversation, bringing your research, your passion, and your time to this. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a great conversation. If you're looking for ways to transform your work and create more joy, subscribe to Joy at Work wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'd love to hear about how you're finding joy at work. 
share on social media with the hashtag joy at work. Did you know that we offer joy workshops? Our interactive workshops help leaders learn how to create joy, lead more confidently, and build more empathetic and human workplaces. We've already worked with several multinational corporations to bring more joy to their work. If you'd like to learn more, email our team at joy at carney.com. Joy at Work is produced by Carney, a global management consulting firm. We help our clients reach their full potential and find the way forward during uncertain times. Learn more at carney.com slash joy at work. And if you enjoy this show, check out the other shows in the Carney Podcast Network, including A World Transformed, Reimagining the Future, hosted by my colleague and Chairman Emeritus, Paul Laudacina. It's a fascinating look at how our current crisis will propel us into a new reality. And on Inside the Mind, Carney's Consumer Institute interviews consumer communities to uncover how and why people shop today and what their behaviors mean for the future of consumer goods and retail companies. You can find these shows wherever you listen to podcasts.